Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder, a repeated founder, and a repeated founder that has done it, you know, multiple times with success. You know, in fact, his uh, last company, you know, like uh, went public, and now, you know, he's raised uh, a bunch of money, too, for what he's building. And, uh, you know, I think that we're going to be enjoying quite a bit, you know, this time with him. So without further ado, Let's welcome our guest today, Jonathan Chen. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane, Jonathan. How was life growing up in Maryland? Because you liked it too much. You didn't leave for quite a while. So tell us about it. Uh, you know, growing up in Maryland was great. Um, my entire family uh, lived there. So I grew up with a bunch of family members. Uh, East Coast, uh, you know, loved the snow. Um, I don't think, you know, West Coast is great, but I think snow growing up is like a childhood thing, you know, like playing around with uh, snowmen and like all those things. So, uh, it's, it was, it was great. And, you know, I went to college there, so definitely stayed there, um, in, in the early stages of my life. Now you got into, uh, into computer science quite early, you know, we're talking about ninth grade. I mean, that's a uh, pretty impressive. So what, what, what got you in that direction? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, it wasn't, um, my choice, actually, my my mom, actually, uh, this was back in the early 2000s, um, said that, uh, well, she thought that um, computer science and technology was the future. Instead of her wanting me to be a lawyer or doctor, like other parents, Asian parents, um, she wanted me to get into software. And, you know, she made the right call there and she signed me up for computer science um, my, you know, my uh, freshman year of high school. And, you know, I love the class and I just pursued that ever since. And obviously, you know, you kept going, you know, you got your degree there, computer science in Maryland, even your master of science too. Now, one thing that I want to ask you is eventually when you ended up uh, going to college, you, uh, you, that's, that's the moment where you really got into the whole idea of, Hey, maybe I want to launch something of my own. Now, before we even get into that, you even wear the valedictorian eh? and you gave the commencement speech. So how was that experience like of, Talking, I mean, obviously now you talk to, to tons of people all the time, but I guess, you know, at that age, you know, talking to so many people, you know, I'm sure that was nerve wracking. Throughout high school in my early life, I had terrible uh, stage fright. 
Um, and I think, you know, in college, I really want to um, really conquer this fear of mine. So I would say in my junior year, I really wanted to um, do the commencement speech and, you know, I wanted to deliver that speech. So it was part of my goal. And at the same time, it was terrifying as well. But I really wanted to conquer my fear there because I knew going forward in life, like public speaking is just like a skill set you just, you just need to have, like everywhere you go. So, you know, I worked super hard and, you know, um, definitely, you know, got top grades, uh, of course. And then uh, it was something you had to be nominated um, for. And um, they had the you know, set of deans uh, had to select you for. So, it, yes, it was extremely terrifying, but it was something that I really wanted to do because um, I knew, you know, going forward in the future is just something that um, was a skill set that was necessary. And, uh, you know, during the high school years there in Maryland, you met Tim Huang, who uh, ended up uh, being your co-founder at Fiscal Note. So, uh, so you didn't have to go too far away to, to meet who ended up becoming your co-founder for your first company, which was uh, an incredible success. But uh, tell us about how the, uh, that idea of perhaps, you know, like building something came about because, you know, you guys, you know, started pushing this thing, you know, right out of college. So, I mean, within college, the college year. So how was that experience like of you and Tim, you know, all of a sudden, you know, thinking, hey, maybe, maybe we do something here. A lot, I guess like a lot, a lot of people think that, you know, you just have an idea and you just go for it. I will say um, more often than not, and this happened with my second company too, um, before Fiscal Note, my first company or our first company, we actually chat about many, many ideas. Um, and uh, even before I was chatting about ideas with Tim, like just like myself, I, uh, throughout my tenure at, uh, at, in college, I actually tried like six different ideas and I built like different apps, uh, all failed, by the way, uh, all didn't really get anywhere. And Tim and I also had many different ideas that we were trying to pursue. But then we realized after, you know, a couple of weeks of doing it, it wasn't feasible, it wasn't like that great of an idea. So I think it just starts out with just having conversations with friends and people and just throwing out ideas. And eventually, you know, you'll land on something that, um, you know, you really like and you decide to, to go for it because the opportunity was there. So how do you guys land on Fiscal Note? You know, what was that process of uh, that brainstorming process of taking a look at things, taking a look at different markets? And then all of a sudden you're like, my God, this idea is meaningful enough. Let's go. Yeah. Um, I think uh, as a younger entrepreneur, it was less so less less analytical and less um, practical. Um, whereas uh, nowadays, I think it, um, as someone more mature, uh, we definitely take a look at the markets in, in more detail. But previously, you know, first company as first time entrepreneur, I think uh, for us, it's about um, having that experience already in the field. So Tim, um, who's uh, uh, who was the CEO and currently is still a CEO of Fiscal Note. Um, did work in governments, had a lot of experience in, um, you know, with, with that environment and saw a lot of the issues, um, you know, being there. So the idea kind of came from his experience working, uh, you know, as a student member of Board of Education uh, for Maryland and all the issues with data um, and the decision-making process. And we wanted to build fiscal to really solve those issues. And that was kind of like, you know, the process there is really finding that that core problem and figuring out you know can we bring a bring a solution and how do you guys i mean you were you were quite young so what was that process of figuring you know hey i'm going to be cto you're going to be ceo and we're going to be co-founders so how how did you guys think about distributing responsibilities and and what that would entail i mean being so young 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I think this is uh, probably uh, widely, uh, widely known already. Like, in general, when you start a company, um, ideally, I, I personally think ideally two or three founders is um, the best. Uh, you have the CEO, you have some technical person, and then third person, um, either someone in operations or, or growth or, uh, or, you know, one of those two areas um, in general. And um, we did have a third co-founder who was kind of working on um, sales and growth um, and ops um, all three at the same time. But for myself, since my background was in technology, um, it was obvious. I was, a, I was the obvious choice for a, a CTO. So then going into plug and play, you know, why did you guys think, hey, maybe we should go and, and, and take on, you know, an accelerator experience? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's probably the best route to go if you have no experience, right? Like uh, just starting companies or just anything or just networking and you're just starting out and you really don't know, you know, where to start off. Um, join an accelerator. It doesn't have to be plug and play. It can be, you know, anything, uh, even something local in your community um, will definitely help you just structure your understanding of how to approach a startup and just getting connected with the right people probably in the area. Um, so you can start getting investments, start um, hiring folks, and start building the true company. So I guess for the people that are that are listening to to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Fiscal Note? It was a it was a SaaS company, right? So like um, essentially, we built software and uh, we sold the software to businesses. So essentially, what Fiscal Note uh, did was um, we we gathered uh, government data, public data. Uh, like regulations, legislation that was distributed by the government through DACA websites. And the issue there was as someone working and understanding the law, um, especially in, on compliance teams uh, within businesses themselves, it was very tedious to, you know, go through all these different websites and understand, you know, what new law was introduced in your industry. And it was just a pain in the butt there. Um, so what we did was we aggregate all that data into one platform and then we have analytics and also workflow software to help those um, folks uh, with their day-to-day jobs. Um, and, you know, with that said, the, uh, the software itself, we sold seats on like a per-seat basis, and it was a su- subscription uh, over like one to three years. And your responsibility there, you know, was obviously product and getting it right on the product. At what point <laughs> do you realize, hey, you know, I think that they were into something here? Yeah, um, you know, probably is very interesting. You know, there's so many playbooks. It's, it's really, uh, it's trial and error. Uh, that's probably the best way to uh, think about it. You're pumping out 10 features. Uh, potentially three of them are going to actually stick. But you're, the velocity of how quickly you do so will determine how quickly you'll figure out what those three are, right? So for us, like, we were just like, you know, a client was asking for something or telling us about an issue. We just try to get out as quickly as possible because, like, you know, those are where you get your ideas, essentially, is talking to clients and customers. Um, sometimes, they, I mean, probably more than 50% of the time, they're not right. But like, you need to move fast. And sometimes they're half right. So then you can kind of figure it out um, from there. So just, you know, we got to move super, super fast and, you know, uh, pump out as many features as, as you can. And the company, you know, did many, many rounds of financings all the way up until, you know, becoming a publicly listed company on the New York Stock Exchange. But um, but I guess the the question there is, 
what was that journey like? Because I know that at the beginning, you know, for you guys, you know, it was probably not easy to, uh, you know, you had to probably kiss a lot of frogs until you were like to find <laughs> the one that, that made sense. Oh, it was definitely a lot of frogs for sure. Um, I, I would, I would say, you know, it, for us to, uh, the road to IPO was, you know, it was a nine year journey and it was a lot of ups and downs to the point where I, I think, you know, what makes a uh, second time entrepreneur so, uh, attractive for VCs, honestly, is because it's like you've been to war and you survived and you have so many battle scars to the point where like, if you get cut a few times more, it's like, it's nothing. Right. So like, after probably the first year was tough. I would say the first year, year and a half was tough. Like, of course, like every startup probably went through this, but we almost ran out of money. Um, uh, and, you know, we had to uh, <clears throat> basically pull employees aside and tell them, you know, the hard things uh, that are about to happen. And, you know, there's a lot of tough conversations um, in, in, that, uh, in that aspect. And after a certain point of two, three years of doing this, like, you know, some apocalyptic event happens, you have to let your team know, and it's always very awkward and um, sometimes very stressful. But after you do that, maybe two, three times, you kind of get used to it and it's expected. And then <clears throat> if your early team stays on with you, they expect it as well. And um, that also speaks, you know, to how well you should hire in the beginning is folks who are really resilient to, you know, issues and whatnot. So it was a very tough journey. Um, there's many times, many apocalyptic events um, that could have killed the company. And I'm, that happens all the time. And really, it's not about giving up. It's about thinking about solutions, how to get past that um, that hump, right? Consistently, and you just keep going and keep your eye on the vision there. And I believe that prior to the IPO, the company had raised a, what was that, like a little bit over $200 million? Yeah, I would say two, two $300 million. Um, We also raised a bunch of debt as well. So it's like a, it's like a mix. And when the company did the IPO in August 2022, it IPO'd at 1.3 billion. I mean, what what goes through your mind when, you know, August 1st, 2022, you see the company that you founded, you know, with your high school buddy, you know, going public, you know, like the value that you create, 1.3 billion. I mean, it's 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 kind of ridiculous. I mean, what was what was going through your head? Uh, quite honestly, um, I think, you know, we got, we got to last till the, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, the period of time where it's like the, the lockup period, I was like, oh crap, we got, we got last to the lockup period. But, you know, <laughs> but besides that, like, I think it was an incredible experience um, to be on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, it's only, you know, things you just see on TV and, um, and, when I guess when I was there, I was thinking back to the early days, and uh, we we wanted to you know get this far, but uh, being much younger, we were like early twenties. It was just about having fun and building something with with my friends. Um, and the fact that we got this far was just like it, it, it still amazes me, um, like how you know we just didn't give up and we just kept going. So uh, it was just quite an amazing journey there. Now, in your case, you took the uh, foot of the gas of fiscal note, you know, a little bit earlier, you know, before the IP. I mean, now you're with with Nitra, which you actually started in October 2021. But I guess, you know, you had a bunch of projects on the side, you know, uh, you were in fiscal note. I mean, you 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 had that entrepreneurial drive. And I'm sure that eventually, you know, like you were like, my God, fiscal note is growing like crazy. This is becoming more like a corporation type of uh 
feeling. Uh, and, you know, maybe at that point, you know, you realize that they, you had to do something about it. So what, what would you say that really triggered you, you know, to, to perhaps, you know, take a look outside and, and think that the grass could be greener, you know, somewhere else? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, as, as a founder in general, I think most folks are always looking for opportunities, new opportunities, and just like, uh, not in terms of like job wise, but like opportunities in the market, right? Because like, I think in order to start really amazing companies, um, ideas are great, but it's about when you pursue an idea, and how ripe the market is, right? And the timing of everything. So that's like, you know, you could, you could be an amazing like engineer, and you could start a Facebook-like company now, but you probably won't get anywhere. Um, you really had to do it like in early 2000s, right? So it's always like looking for, you know, is it the right timing for a certain certain industry to really dive into? Um, and, you know, for, for Nitra specifically, I, I think, uh, you know, I was monitoring, you know, what was happening in the fintech space. And, and I mean, I'm sure most people on the podcast know, like fintech was like exploding back, you know, like in 2021, 2020, and, you know, crypto definitely accelerated that aspect as well. Um, crypto was insane, you know, back then. Right. So, uh, the next, what, what generally happens, you know, when you observe an industry and you observe a huge change, um, that is occurring, um, is, uh, once the technology or a certain trend, uh, becomes very general and, um, reach, reaches the masses, it, it tends to verticalize, start to verticalize into specific industries. Um, you can see that with like on-demand back in the early 2010s. First, you have very general on-demand um, companies, and then it starts to like verticalize into specific like industries. And it's the same thing with um, just like uh, any type of trend in general, but fintech was, was happening now, right? So, you know, you have companies like Brax, Ramp, Stripe, they're very general, generalized, but then you have companies that are starting to take that and then target a specific industry and be the winner in that industry. And uh, we, or, you know, for, for Nitra, I just felt like the opportunity to um, do this and for the industry that we chose in healthcare was just too big of an opportunity to miss out on. Um, so I decided to um, unofficially um, pursue Nitra because I was technically still at Fisco Notes. Um, and then after the IPO, I I took my leave and um, started to pursue Nitra. Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction. You need to grow. You need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash 
deal makers and that is again go.tech forward slash deal makers so go get your own domain that's amazing now with nitra you know for the people that are listening to get it what ended up being the business model how do you guys make money so it's it's similar it's, it's SaaS. so basically with nitra is is we're building financial services for uh the healthcare industry so you could think like doctors physicians even um, the medical suppliers and whatnot so general healthcare industry and we're building services that are you know corporate card uh, financing um loans insurance um, banking services and really taking what was very uh uh traditional like most folks in the industry still using traditional banking solutions traditional lending solutions and um don't really have any form of technology or workflow softwares in their financial workflow um like we're building um, basically the next generation of that for this particular industry. And um, this industry in general, it, it's kind of similar to Fiscal Nova, you know, given our experience, uh, my experience in the past, you know, we basically have a kind of freemium model for our corporate card, the user corporate card, and we make, make money on uh, the interchange fee. But we also are starting to charge more for our software components because, it's, you know, we don't just want to be the finance um, part of the the um, uh, the experience, right? You know, you swipe a card, sure. We also want to build software that kind of enhances the financial workflow experience for um, the doctor, for the clinic, in charge of subscription as well. And uh, I guess, you know, now that you had uh, that experience with, with, with Fiscal Note, obviously when it comes to putting the band together here and, and the team, you know, the way that you think about hiring employees for an early stage company is completely different for the time that you're, you know, hiring for later stage companies. Why is that the case? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's always very tough, like hiring, it's sometimes hit or miss. And, you know, I've been hiring for 10 years. And it's, you just, it's, you're not always, you're just never going to get it right, like, um, 100% of the time. And I think for, for me, there's a couple of things I look for, right? Like, of course, like skill set is kind of like a prerequisite. I think you definitely, you know, skill set you can test for. Like for engineers, you you know, coding ability, all these things. Um, for sales, like your ability to to close clients. But really, it's about uh, one one thing I look for is about attitude and the um, the understanding of what you just got yourself into <laughs> is extremely important. So the the probably the best story I have for this in particular is at Fiscal Notes. Uh, you know. We hired really stellar people, and um, it was pretty much in hindsight that we kind of found this out because, like, our company after the first year at Fiscal Notes, we were running out of cash, and we pulled everyone aside, and we had to tell them, "Hey, we're running out of cash. Can you take a huge pay cut, uh, and and or like take zero pay?" And it was a very tough conversation, and we had about twelve employees then. Um, this was at Fiscal Note um, early days. And every single one of the employees said that they would take the pay cut and they believe in us and they believe in the company. Um, and, you know, they did. And it was really, it was a really awkward summer. I'll tell you that because um, no one got paid. But then we eventually pulled it off. We raised like a bridge round that led to a massive Series A of $7 million. And then we back paid everybody. But really, it's about employees that um, and folks we bring on the company. Like, it's not about the good times. Like, everyone's happy in the good times, right? But like, what that really tests is like when you think about to yourself when you're about to hire this person is if there's a bad time happening if if there's an apocalyptic apocalyptic event what would this person do right like will this person just leave us and just be like ah oh, goodbye this company is failing right 
And to me, like, I always ask this question every time I interview something, like, what do I think this person will do? Will this person stay? Will this person, what, hustle harder and try to make sure that we all survive and, you know, get to the next stage? Because like, that's truly what I'm looking for. Like, skill set is one thing, but like, it's the tenacity and like, um, your ability to take on huge amounts of stress and uncertainty in, in terrible times. And for Nitra, for example, you know, I'm sure that the amount of experiences and lessons learned with fiscal note, you know, was probably unbelievable. So I guess with Nitra, you know, when you guys were thinking about tactical ways to be able to achieve product market fit faster, you know, how did you guys think about that? It's very interesting. I think, you know, for us, um, it's truly about how fast, like I mentioned this earlier, right? Like how fast you can pump out certain features and how close you can get with customers. Um, Ideally, in the beginning, you want to have just one or two customers that are like your champions, right? So like even just one, like you just start with one customer. And I know a lot of people in the corporate environment, they tell you, hey, you got to interview 10 customers, find similarities, you know, and then, you know, find out the trade-offs of what what you're building and then build the right thing. Uh, That's great in large companies. But I think in small companies, there's a lot more uncertainty and you just want to make a customer happy. And you start building for one or two customers, even if this is very specific, because what will happen over time is you'll start to build uh, something for the general masses. But it's hard to, it, it's like, it's like, it's, it's like a dilemma where you're like, you want to build something where a lot of people will use it and you feel like it will um, be relevant for like, you know, 10, 20, 30, or 100 different customers. But the dilemma is you have to get, to talk to a hundred different customers who are potentially will be customers. But in the beginning, you know, you, you only have the opportunity to really talk to one or two um, if you want to get it out fast enough and start generating revenue. So my advice generally, I mean, what, what we did is like, we started off with just a few customers, um, find out what the issues are. And generally, uh, some of them, sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. But what happened is your product will start to evolve to a point where the next customer you talk to, you know, 80% of the problem is already solved. You're like, hey, we were to solve this and they'll tell you the next 20%. And it keeps growing where the, and the product becomes more valuable over time. And I would not try to try to figure out what are the similarities between, you know, like 50 customers and try to build that. I would just incrementally build features um, to get your product off the ground as quickly as possible. So, and that, that's exactly what we did. Now, I guess, uh, you know, another thing to think about in a tactical way is investors. Because first, you need to get the connection. And then second, you need to get them to invest. Now, one would have thought that it gets easier, you know, as someone that has, you know, that is a unicorn founder, you know, someone that has built a company worth a billion plus at some point. So I guess for you guys, how was this experience second time around, you know, of uh, taking out your hat and hoping that people are going to throw money in? (laughs) Yeah, um, I will say it was it was definitely easier. Uh, because you remove the um, the doubt of credibility, where like if you're a first time founder, right? Like uh, you have to prove to them that you know you're capable of executing. Um, and then after you prove that, then you got to prove that uh, your idea is worth it, right? Um, for them to invest in. So um, really, you know, in the early days at Fiscal Notes, you know, we had to do that. So it's like getting your foot in the door, getting the connections, and just getting your name out there just to, for them to know who you are. That's like step one, which is just hard in general. And, and that's why I say like an accelerator well, may help because they help you introduce um, you to 
generally like investor communities or angel communities, and you can get your uh, you get you get your start there. Um, we did pitch like 200 plus investors just to get our seed round. So it is a it's like a sales game. You just got to pitch, 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 get rejected for 99%, and you just keep going. Um, as a second time founder, like I said, that's uh, that part was removed because um, we already had the connections. We you know we just reached out to folks who already knew. But then you know what what I learned about um, uh, investing in general. It's team, you know, team, and you know, the founder is definitely extremely important for sure. And um, if the investor believes in your ability to execute, but I think the most important thing, and I think uh, isn't isn't said enough um, uh, as general advice for people who are trying to get investment, is the number one thing you want to do is you want to align with the philosophies and beliefs of the investors. Now, what this essentially means is um, uh, you have to be building towards a vision that's, you know, the investor you're talking to, whether it's a VC firm, angel, whatever, um, uh, it has to align with what they believe is the future, right? If they think, you know, AI, something about AI is the future, and you're pitching that exact thing, you have a much higher chance of getting that investment, right? For us, um, with Nitra, it was actually fairly, um, uh, we, you know, we were extremely uh, fortunate where, you know, we, and this was very analytical on our part, um, we were looking at the fintech industry, um, predicting that it would verticalize into healthcare and various other industries as well. And you know what? You know, our philosophies and my prediction align with all our investors. They all believe that, you know, verticalization of fintech was happening. And it was happening this decade and healthcare was also being disrupted. And there's a lot of things that are happening, happening in healthcare. And that's, you know, that's why they invested in Nitra. So if you're able to get that alignment, like that's when the investment happens. And it's not about like, oh, you have a good idea. That's great. Maybe an investor may think you have a good idea, but they don't, they don't have, you know, they didn't really do any research in the industry. They don't have any predictions or philosophies about the future of that industry. You're not really going to get the investment, even if they think you're a stellar founder sometimes. So like one, you know, you got to prove your credibility um, somehow. Right. Um, and then two, you got to align with the philosophies of, of the investor. Now, for you guys with Nitra, how much money have you guys raised to date? So with Nitra, we raised about 60 ish million dollars, um, part equity, part debt. Um, and uh, uh, it, it was a massive round. I, I, I know, um, you know, we were at the tail end of the the, the fundraising um, craziness of 2021. So we, we got lucky there before everything crashed in 2022. So obviously with investors, you know, vision is a big one. So if we're thinking about vision now, and let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Nitra is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, uh, this is pretty crazy. But for us, like uh, we are in the fintech space, I'm sure, but more so in the healthcare space, we think the bigger opportunity is in healthcare. And and I'm sure... Um, for folks who potentially in the healthcare space, you know, the biggest companies in healthcare are folks like, you know, McKesson, Carnot Health, Henry Schein. They're all, when you think about it, they're all like medical suppliers. They're all, you know, in the medical supply space. And, and that space is just massive, like hundreds of billions, if not a trillion dollar, you know, industry um, in itself. Um, and yet these, these traditional players that I'm talking about here, you know, they're still doing things that are just, not up to date in terms of technology. You know, their solutions are very um, traditional. Um, and we want to 
I hate using this um, this word, but we want to disrupt this entire workflow um, and really be the next McKesson, be the next um, Carnival Health. And this is moving beyond fintech. You know, we we're starting off in fintech, and we want to own the entire financial stack of the healthcare space. But beyond that, like, how else can you expand? Well, you know, going into more workflows and um, the medical supply space and, um, you know, getting into the territory that is, you know, Carnot Health, McKesson, and uh, really be kind of the, the Amazon of, of healthcare. So let's shift from future to past. So let's say, you know, now we, we go to the past, but we do it with a lens of reflection. I put you into a time machine. And I bring you back in time, back in time to that moment that you were still in the University of Maryland, thinking what the hell to do with your life, right? What was going to happen next? <laughs> and, um, and let's say, you know, you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Jonathan, and you're able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, that, I mean, that's a good question. There's probably so much. I want to say, um, the biggest, I think, you know, probably the biggest thing, um, is essentially what you, what you want to do is, um, I, I know this sounds very, uh, cliche and it's, it sounds cliche and, it, but it's really hard to do in the moment is you kind of just, you, you got to get to the point where you're numb to rejection you're numb to like bad things happening around you. And I wish uh, I was numb to that much earlier because it definitely would have saved a, um, me a lot of uh, time um, and just like frustration and stress. I think it's just like, you know, put yourself in situations where there's more uncertainty and try to power through it as early as you can. Um, and, you know, there's a reason why like, uh, when you, you firefight pretty much every day as a startup founder, like in every, especially if you're a CEO, right? Like you're firefighting every department. If you're a CTO, it's just tech. Why not? I think putting yourself in challenging situations um, where it's uncertain and you're extremely stressful more often um, will prepare you for that of, you know, the war zone of, of startups. Um, so my advice to myself, you know, is like, uh, you know, don't be afraid of rejection. Just keep going and don't let it affect you emotionally. Because like, you know, if things are affecting you emotionally, it affects the business. If you're more level, uh, level-headed and more practical about things, get rejected, move on to the next thing, you're going to execute much faster. And I wish in the early days, like, like I've said, for the first two years, like, man, it was an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, firefighting out of time and not knowing whether the company would survive. I think nowadays, like... We firefight a lot. I mean, it's a startup, but it's expected. And I kind of just power through it. And like, I know I'm going to solve the issue. Like, there's always an issue that comes along. And my mindset now is, oh, it's another issue. We'll solve it. My mindset back then is like, shit, is the company going to die? Oh, crap. Is the company going to die? And I think you know, that wastes a lot of time in general. And you worry yourself and you worry your teammates around you. And um, if you just tell yourself, hey, we're going to do it, and you just power through it like it's nothing, like, that's what I do now, and I wish I had that much earlier. I love that. So, uh, Jonathan, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, um, you know, we, you know, my company is Nitra.com. Um, my contact is just JonathanNitra.com. I also have a LinkedIn. 
My uh, handler is, uh, or my username is Hackbird, H-A-C-K-B-Y-R-D. And you can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. um, And I'm happy to connect. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, th- thank you so much for you know having me as well, and uh, really, really, really good questions. And you know, I wish uh, for all those who are listening, I wish you the best of luck. I know the journey is hard and it's lonely. Hopefully, you're with friends. Um, I was with friends, um, which made it a lot better. Um, and you know, I know you'll be super successful. Just don't give up and, and keep going. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.